Let me take a couple of questions that you all have given to me and address those. We must open the floor as long as we have. And if you've already witnessed, somebody else is going to have to tell us how much time we have. I don't know. First of all, the question about making friends, especially the church, how do you do that in a way that's healthy? Because sometimes we've been told, I was told, that maybe I shouldn't be holding this. Um, that I've been told, some of you say, that you have to be careful with friendships in the church because of confidentiality and things like that. Let me say that um, you've got to have friends wherever you go. Very far from And that includes the church. So someone who tells me you can't have friends in the church, I'm going, I don't know what kind of church you're going to, but man, the one I go to, I have friends everywhere, in all directions. Now, having said that, I don't tell my friends everything. If I've got a big staff issue with somebody that needs to be fired, and they're in major trouble, I'm not telling my friend that. You say, well, I thought he was your best friend. He is. But he has a conflict of interest in that issue. Every relationship is conditioned, including my wife. Let me tell you, if you come to me for counsel, my wife would not know a thing about it, ever, unless you told her. So my wife knows there's a firewall between my confidential counseling conversation with you and the conversations I have with my best friend, my wife, of 47 years. And we dated five years before that, so we're really old. So we're closest to friends, but we do not discuss it. Now, now that's been collaboratively determined by my wife and myself. Furthermore, people don't give me advice through my wife. She has learned through the years to say, Sandy would love to hear you talk about that one Sandy. Or would you tell him, no, he prefers to hear it directly from the church. He talk about she will not allow herself to be used in an inappropriate way. If I have a disagreement with one of you on my staff, the last person who's going to hear about that is my wife. Why? Because in case you had not noticed in marriage, if someone attacks your spouse, they're always wrong. I could never expect my wife to be objective. That's an unfair expectation. So I'm not going to get the counsel. I mean, I may, but it's going to be biased because she's taking my side. The other party is not there to defend themselves. It's called gossip and backbiting. You do it in your own marriage. You say, well, aren't we close to the friends? Shouldn't we share everything? Yeah, you're close to the friends, and no, you shouldn't share everything. People make big mistakes in ministry on this campus. And I, I'm, I'm stressing it because I know you're following it. So I suggest to you, you have an agreement with your spouse that when there's a conflict, you're not going to talk to her about it. Unless it's outside the range of the relationships that she has. For example... If I have a big knockdown, drag out, con uh, you know, conflict with you, and you're walking down the church hall the next Sunday, and my wife's going to walk up to you and give you a big hug, and you'll think, "Mom, she's awfully gracious." No, she's just ignorant. <laughs> she thinks you're great. 
I have no right to mess up her church life and to mess up her relationship with you over an argument I had with you. She wasn't there. She'll never be part of the reconciliation process. If we're friends, we have a good conflict, we'll be resolved by the next day. And I forget to tell her, so she's not resolved. Never will be. So we're massively naive about how we include our spouses in negative information and confidential information in the church. You need a confidant on these issues, all the ones I've mentioned. They are not in the church. Unless you happen to have a co-pastor or someone working with you who is intentionally brought into the case. And everybody knows they're in the case. Now you can talk with them about it. Get counsel. Otherwise, I have close friends who are not in this. I cultivate those friendships. I've had accountability partners for 30 years. We get together every year. We pray for each other regularly. We get free counsel from each other. They're all senior ministers. So I, and that was intentional on my part. I want really good friends who are doing something like what I'm doing so I can get good counsel and be yoked and be able to share confidential things that don't affect their environment and their knowledge of it doesn't affect their relationships with our people instead of talking to Alice. It's not because I value them more than Alice. It's because I value Alice more and her relationships with, with our friends. So yes, you have deep, long, lasting, lifelong friendships in church. My friends in Quincy, Massachusetts, Elizabeth in Tennessee, we've got my in Tennessee and Georgia, Memphis, Birmingham, all the places I've served, dear good friends. I weep over their sadnesses, I rejoice in their happinesses, I'm part of their lives, but I don't share with them confidential information. And that's the reason I can be their friend. I may be a closer friend than almost everybody because they know I keep my mouth shut. Now there are limits. If you are in an adulterous relationship and you're not repenting, then I'm not going to keep it to myself. Why? We belong to a family with an order. It's called church discipline. We're in that common order. So I don't have a right to keep that confidential. But other than those kind of requirements, for your welfare, we keep it confidential. Now having said that, yeah, build friendships. Now, when I first went to Memphis as senior pastor, before I ever preached there, I took about two months to get to know people. And I, and I also visited churches in the area. It was a large church, and so there was more, there was more complex and there were more things to know. I wouldn't do that in a smaller church, take that much time. But in a large church like that in a large city, I, I decided I'm going to get the lay of the land. Well, the first thing I did, I surveyed in writing all the deacons and all the elders, active and inactive, the deacons. And I asked them some key questions, you know, like what do you want to see retained in the life of the second Presbyterian? What do you want to see change? Uh, what should the senior minister do in his first nine months? And things like that. And I collated all that information. I told them, we're going to go out in the woods and have a retreat just like this. And I'm going to tell you what you told me. So I reported back to them the plan. And that was my mandate. They said it, not me. Uh, and it worked. But before we did any of that on that retreat, here's the first thing I taught them. I taught them how to fire me. Because I told them, I love Presbyterian governance, but there is a quirk in it. Those of you who serve on boards and know, gov you know organizational governance, you'll know that the most important thing that a board does, besides stating what the mission of the organization is, 
is to hire the CEO to lead the effort. So you hire, evaluate, and fire the CEO. That's the big job of a board. You give them executive limitations, you, you know, and so on, you hold them accountable. But when you evaluate your CEO, you have evaluated your organization. So a secular board knows that. Back board knows. We've got to get the right CEO, and we evaluate him, we've evaluated this entire bank and That's what you're looking at. Now, if you're looking at it like that in a large trusted church, here's your problem. You don't hire nor fire the CEO. <laughs> the congregation does. So there's a little quirk there, and you can see with the problems in Presbyterianism where a lot of this comes from. If you think the pastor should leave and he doesn't, you're in front of a royal back. And you're in a big congregational meeting that splits the church. So Presbyterianism has its problems. So how do you break through the Gordian knot? There's only one way. And at 43 years of age, I think I figured it out. So I'm going to explain to them, here's how you officers can fire. Not the congregation. So I'm going to see to you a power that you don't have in the Constitution. I'm going to give it to you. Here's how you fire. And I told them how to do it. So we're going to break it. We're going to cut the board in knot. So if I'm not here at your pleasure, I'm not going to be here. We're going to decide that from the beginning. That's non-Presbyterian. It's not contra-Presbyterian. It's trans-Presbyterian. Okay? And I think we're solving one of the constitutional problems that we've got. I don't want to change the Constitution because I do think there are situations where churches are very unhealthy and some courageous pastor has to fight it all the way through, including congregational meetings. And I do not want to eliminate that possibility in the worst case scenarios that we have in Presbyterianism. So I will leave it the way it is. But in a healthy church, I think we pastors can cut the Gordian knot that way. And I think, uh, well, and so here's what I told you. I said, I don't know who my best friends are going to be. But I know this, I'm going to have it. And it'll be obvious. You'll know who they are. Send them to my office. It's about me. And we'll have little tears in our cheek waving goodbye. Oh, it's been wonderful to be with you. And I'll be on my next ministry. And it'll be a unified church, a unified session, and a happy pastor. Friends. Why did I say friends? Because I like, trust, and respect the friends, and I'll listen to them, and I'll do what they say. So before I did retire and pulled the trigger on them, you know what I did? I was 64, but I got three of my 50-year-old friends who would be bearing the burden of my departure as elders because they were leaders among leaders at 50. I brought them in my office and said, I need an honest opinion. They didn't like it. They resisted. And I said, okay, you pray for five weeks and come back. And that's how we did the deal, because they finally talked to Jesus and realized I was right. Because <laughs> 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 this wasn't the interest of the transition of the church. So, friends, you've got to have it. And it's healthy for you, and if it's healthy for you and your, and your life, it's healthy for your ministry. And you need people who can speak into your life and speak into your ministry. But, still, my closest friends, I don't share counseling situations, I don't care what my real burdens are, if there are burdens that would bias them in any of their relationships, or where they have a conflicted view on them, I go elsewhere, I go outside the church for, for advice. Does this all make sense? 
And the reason for my arguments here is so that you're free to make genuine friendships. But genuine friendships don't mean they're 100% tell-all friendships. Nothing is, including with my wife, as I've told you. So I don't, I don't have a friend like that. I have one. Thank you, Jesus. Now, that leads to another point about friendships. The only friend you will ever have is a friend you don't have to have. If you have to have a friend, let me tell you why you have to have him or her. Because of you. They've got something you want. That's the reason you have to have it. Let me tell you, there's only one friend you have to have. And that's Jesus Christ. He's got everything you want. And I want you to want everything He's got. And it's in your interest and it's for the glory of God that you would want everything He's got for you. So you must demand a friendship with Jesus Christ. Everybody else is contingent, including your spouse. If you have to have your spouse, you're not loving your spouse. The reason David and Jonathan were friends is because they didn't have to have each other. They made a covenant in the Lord. They were friends because of the common advancement of the kingdom. Jonathan was willing to give up his seat as prime prince and heir to the throne because he saw the big kingdom with the capital dead and therefore David was his friend. The moment the kingdom is undermined, then you're not my unconditional friend. You're always a conditional friend. And it's conditioned in Jesus Christ. The only way you could really be a friend is if you have the courage to be alone. If you have to be connected in order to feel good about yourself, or to feel like you're healthy, or some other definition you've got for what your purpose in life, you're in friends. You're using people. Look at Jesus Christ. Our Lord went to the cross and every one of His friends abandoned Him. And He went alone to the cross. And what did He say to us? Take up your cross. Be abandoned. And come follow Me. And have come. If in your marriage You've never experienced the loneliness of the separation of being married to a sinner and being a sinner married to a sinner. You really haven't reached the depth of what a Christian marriage is all about. A Christian marriage is continued. It's in Christ. And there are times rare though they be when we actually gently, lovingly confront each other because the Lord of the house is being offended by something you're perpetrating. And I will not be part Christian marriages contain that willingness to be alone. So the only way you have a best friend is if it's a friend you don't have to have. So I encourage you to enter into loneliness. You know, when I talk, I talk to seniors in high school, uh, I get four Sundays in the spring during Sunday school. The kids started calling it Sandy School. <laughs> and I had four points I covered with them, one for each class, about what we want, you know, we're doing our final equipment for hitting the college campus. 
The first one I talk about is about how to lead your family well. I keep reminding you, you know, you're not coming back. You may be here in the summer, but you're really kind of guest. I mean, you don't permanently live with this family anymore. You better lead them really well. And I tell them some stories of people who did it and why this is on the line. But the first thing I tell them about the campus, University of Michigan did a study years ago to discover the number one problem on college students, college freshmen. 70% said the same thing, loneliness. And I suspect the other 30% were lonely but didn't have enough maturity to know what that emotion was. It's a lonely experience. Now, you're going into a situation that's lonely, like ministry, you're going to college of depression. Uh, you need to know how to manage the loneliness. And the problem that so many freshmen get into is they try to relieve the loneliness, to relieve it quickly. That leads to all kinds of problems, namely getting in with the wrong crowd. You want to be included like that, you can do it. Take the lowest hanging group, you got it. Go to the bar with them, hang out with a walker, do what they do, and you're in. One little song, not really. But we train them in two ways. Number one, embrace your loneliness, because this is where the Lord does a lot of His really good work and He's showing you He's really the only friend you ever had and ever will have until you get home. He's the only unconditional friend you've got, and you need to get to know Him better, and He's taking this other away from you so that you'll focus on Him. Second, don't resolve the loneliness quickly. Resolve it slowly. And you'll come home at Christmas and you'll have a friend, probably. At least an acquaintance. You'll feel like you kind of fit in. So that by your second semester, you actually are introduced back to college campus. Are you willing to wait six weeks, eight weeks, twelve weeks, whatever it takes, to have your loneliness resolved through involving yourself in the campus ministry, with the Bible study, with a local church that you've got involved in, are you willing to wait until the loneliness is relieved through healthy means? That will be a key to your spiritual success for the next four years. So teaching on friendships and the loneliness required for healthy friendships is vital with kids and with youth workers. Because you need friends. And you, need that, you need to be courageous and focused in all of your friendships. Everything is mediated through Jesus Christ. Everything. Up to Christ, down to your friend. From your friend to Christ, back to you. He's in the middle of everything. We're in Christ. We're walking in Him. Our friendships are in Christ. Our soulmate friendship. And then, of course, we have all kinds of friendships, acquaintances with unbelievers. And those are all missional. How could you know about heaven and hell and not be missional with a lost friend? Please explain this to me. How can there not be an agenda? People say, oh, I just want a friendship with no agenda. Well, then you don't want a real friendship because you know Jesus Christ, you know about heaven and hell, and you don't want to leave them there to heaven. That's no friendship to me. So my friendship agenda is a love agenda. And being a Christian, I know what love really is. It's, it's edifying people so they get home safely. So every friendship is on Jesus' kingdom agenda. Everyone. It's like when you get married, I don't have any female friends that are not mediated through Allison. I just don't have them. Now, you may not have met Allison, and you may be female, and we can be friends, but you'll hear me talking about her all the time. It's just natural. I'm with a woman. My woman is Allison. You'd love her. 
That's healthy sexual ideation is a married person. Well, you're married to Jesus Christ. We're on His agenda completely. It's all about Him. That's what you want to think with friendships. Now, the other question that came up, uh, help me. He asked one of you. Yeah, please, do you mind yeah. asking uh, uh, how to. Yes, yes, thank you. You, you triggered it. Okay. So the question is, uh, if you know your personality, that it's liable to be a type, well, it is a type A person. Okay? So some of you have type A, some of you have type B. So this is a type A question. But those of you who are type B, it's good for you to listen in to see how we self-talk. Uh, type A person uh, has a, it is sort of performance driven. <laughs> okay, you know what I mean, type that. So we, uh, we we look at results. We want things to happen. We tend to be activists, initiators, uh, performers. And you know, on one hand, you kind of like working with or even working for a type of person because they sort of get things done. On the other hand, it can drive you crazy. Their expectations are sometimes unrealistic. They expect everybody to have the same energy level they have. So the question is, how does a type A person work in a healthy way on a staff or with volunteers who have multiple types of personalities? So all I can do is tell you as a type A, I may not be as type A as you are, but I, I'm definitely type A. I'll tell you how I think about it. You have to uh, thank God for the assets he's given you, that you have a, a form of ambition, and of course you need to be carefully focused and reined in, but you want to see things happen, and that's good. I mean, look at the apostles. These guys went, they, they were fishermen in Galilee, they were parochial, they didn't know anything, they were uneducated, and they were all over the world. Thomas goes to India, for heaven's sakes, doesn't know the language, and he's going to be preaching Jesus, and he gets stoned for it. Paul goes across country all over the place, Peter, for heaven's sakes, Nothing like that is up in the road. So, you know, it's um, you need people who want to see things happen. And Paul is type. So with with Paul or with, with ourselves, I think we have to say, well, let's thank God that our engines are quickly fired over the objectives of gospel mission. But that, that ignites us. And you, I've already told you, I, I've been very involved in international ministry. It ignites me. Why? Because it's the kingdom. It's advancing the big cause. It's the big global picture. Who are we? What are we here to do? So it just it lights on fire. And I'm thankful for that because I know other people have to work on it to get the fire lit. To me, it's a me. It's like kerosene is already on the, on the wood. So I thank God for and some of that is just a natural personality, not a spiritual maturity. That's what you have to watch out for. Now, when it's not a spiritual maturity, but a natural gifting, it ends up being driven. It ends up being for my glory and not for His. It ends up being, this is what I love to do, and I love to accomplish things, rather than 
a loving self-sacrifice for the sake of the mission and the sake of everyone you do it with. We all know this to be true. One of the best ways to check yourself is to have good friends. Now, with good friends in the church, you can talk about this. You're ridiculous. With good friends. They don't always keep things confidential, but usually they do. And so you're going to go ahead and trust them. And you say, guys, I can just tell from the people working around me, I'm wearing out. And so I go to my type A business friends, Christians, and say, what do you do in your walk time? And here's what I've learned. You have to coach against the environment that you're unintentionally such. This high-performance environment, a hard-working environment, that everybody doesn't quite jihad with. So if I realize I'm in the top probably 3 or 4% of energy-level people, um, I have to say readily to people around me, look, I hope you all don't mind. I, I love working and working hard, and I don't expect you to do the same thing. Here's what I expect you to do. Live a godly life. Answer to all your stakeholders, including me. And enjoy your work. And go about it diligently. With everything in you in the way that's appropriate for your work. And that's what I expect. Well, Pastor, what does that mean in terms of hours? Well, you know, I've already told you all I probably work 65 hours a week. I do not want you working on Why? Because you're not here, Dallas, and I am. You don't have my thoughts, children. You've got your children. You don't have my personality. You have yours. And you have to figure out what's wrong for you. And if I didn't have Allison, and I married some other woman, I probably would not be in this ministry. It wouldn't be right for my family. So it's not just me. It's, is my family suited for this? So you all have to figure out what's right for you. But generally, I'm saying, if you're on staff, as a youth worker staff, in a healthy church that's vibrant, growing, and so on, reaching the loss, you're going to put in 50 years. Normally. If you need to be less than that, just let me know. Let me let, Give me the information about your life, what your energy levels are, and so on. Now, there may come a point, and this is where you need to be able to be fired. After I told the elders how to fire me, here's what I told them. How do we fire you? Because so many elders get jealously guarding their position, and so on. And you need to be just as disposable as I and if you're not disposable, you're not in ministry for the Lord. You're in ministry for yourself. So everybody's disposable, you need to know. So, what you do is, if you're a low energy person, your supervisor is high energy, you just go to him and say, look, I think this is the way I'm built. I think this is the way I can function week to week and be in health spiritually and physically and emotionally. Would you please tell me if that suits our culture? And if it doesn't, Let's work together to help me find another place to serve. That's what you ought to do. That's what every body on staff ought to do. Your resignation is always available. And you're only there at the pleasure of the uh, healthy supervisor that you serve. Now, if he's off his rocker, you can always go to the personnel committee again and say, let's have a broader discussion. But generally, you're, you're not perfect for every environment. I'm not either. And so you need your supervisor to help you figure out whether this is the right, a good environment for you. So you've got to coach your staff. Now also, I'm not only type A, I'm a global thinker. Which means I look at things 30,000 and draw conclusions very quickly. And I love doing it. If I were a physician, I'd be an emergency room physician. Triaging everybody, making decisions quickly, 
saving people's lives. That's interesting. I'd love all the pressure of it. I might even be an air traffic controller. Who knows? But uh, so I've got a little bit of that in me, and everybody's not good. So if I'm leader of a staff, a youth staff, you realize seventy percent of the world's population is not global thinkers; they're process thinkers. Unlike me, they actually put A to B and B to C. I go A Z. They put the thing together. And so before they think it's a good idea, the links in the chain and connect. Not with me. <laughs> and I make new mistakes. If I don't include my process in So what do I do to include them? I start thinking about how they think. They like to get away from the table. Process the idea. See if they can put it together in their mind. Come back to the table and tell me what they think after having thought about it is what most people should do instead of just off the cuff like me. So, I teach them how to call time out. Are we moving too fast? Just raise your hand and say, Pastor, do we need to make this decision? Do we have to make it today? Uh, I'd really like to. But no, we don't. We don't have to. But could we do this next month? Technically, yeah, we could. So, I, I see what you're saying. Okay. But would you all think about this, talk with each other, process it, and we'll come back to discuss next month? That's what a global thinker does who wants to empower his process thinkers. Now likewise, if you're a type A person, you want to empower your type B people. So they have to know this is a safe environment. It's an environment that can slow down and deliberate. It's an environment that can accommodate and be flexible. So you have to know yourself well enough to interpret yourself to your environment. Explain them how you're, you're working. And then within that, there are some principles for ministry over which you wish someone would lead your staff. And you'll talk them off your staff. And you have to figure out what those are. What is, a, by virtue of your personality, just the way you love to work, and what's me-centered, my performance-centered? And what is really having a healthy, productive, fruitful environment? That takes experience and talking to other people. So I would say, probably, you know, in, in the earlier years of ministry, to have an older person you can talk to and say, if you have a situation like this, someone who has your type of personality, go to that person and say, how did you negotiate this kind of situation? So I would take cases. You know the general principles, but it's, you're just continuing to work it out. By the time you're, you know, 50, you've really cycled through pretty much 95% of what you're seeing. You only see 5% new after that. Um, but in your 30s, man, you're hitting new stuff all the time. So I think you need a regular conversation uh, so that you can, you can uh, try case your scenarios with somebody. And it'll, it'll teach you new things, how to apply what you believe into this particular situation. So we do, have, I do think sometimes churches are lazy and church staff are lazy. That's a reality. And some people like ministry because they can hang out in Starbucks and just hang and not really lead people to Christ. So I know that happens, and I'm aware of it, and I don't like it. But I also know there's a fewer cases, but they're there, where churches are just high performance and they're looking at numbers and they're looking at budgets and they're looking at progress that can be measurable, and that's really what they're focused on. I mean, I know a church that's so crass that they actually said in the liturgy meeting, everything we do is to increase our numbers. They said that. 
Everything we do on Sunday morning is so that that visitor will want to come back next week. Everything we do. You just commissioned your church to go straight down into the lower regions. You sacrifice every principle we know from the Scriptures when you do that. Just pragmatic success. That's ugly, ugly, ugly. And I hate that worse than laziness. So, it's, it's like a drunk on a horse. If you fall off to the right or the left, you've got to watch yourself. Check yourself on all sides. Your wife usually knows whether you're being abrupt to demanding. So my wife is very, very merciful, so I don't always take her advice because she's so merciful. <laughs> we, we just be bandaging people all the time. But, uh, but I do listen to her very She catches me. Does that help? It's, I'm sorry, it's not very detailed, but that's the plan. Okay, other questions or comments? These are really good. Take off if you need to. Maybe we've got five minutes if you want. Yeah. Uh, in terms of negotiating with stakeholders, yes, sir. Um, when it comes to youth ministry, who's your stakeholder there that you're negotiating with? Is it senior pastor? Is it a session? Is it the youth themselves? Because uh, in terms of negotiating and uh, them understanding your other stakeholders, I don't know if you have. Yes. Here's, here's what I think I would do. I've not been. I, my first ministry volunteer was junior high ministry. We just had a great experience. Senior highs always intimidated me until I got a little older as a Christian. Now I realize they're just like junior highs. I just don't want to live. Um, <laughs> but there's a soft heart in here, a vulnerable heart. Once you get past that hard shell that many of you describe, you're dealing with someone who really just needs our love. Anyway, uh, what I think I would do, the one I report to, and probably the senior pastor in most cases, would be a key stakeholder. My wife would be a key staple. So what I would do is I'd first of all develop my own idea of what we need here, assessing whether I thought I had what it took to be the leader here with the vision that God has been working in my head. I'd talk to my wife and say, sweetie, in order to pull this off, I think this is the way it would look. What do you think about that? And she eventually, we negotiate that, figure out a pattern that would work for both of us and work for our kids. Then they say, let me take it to, to Bob, the senior pastor. Let's see what he thinks and how he might adjust and I'll get back to him. So then I go to Bob and I say, this is what I'm thinking. I don't mention that at all. This is what I'm thinking. This is kind of my vision for the ministry. I think, I think I'm think i properly suited to be a leader here. And this is the way I think I'd work. Does this sound right to you? And I give it to him right. And then I would say, if he says yes, I would say, Sometime during the next year, would you allow me to come to the session and just give a 10-minute presentation on my vision for our youth work and how my life is going to live as a youth leader so they know why I never come in on Thursday. I'm off. And why on Monday mornings, I don't show up till dinner. Because I've been up all night with these kids. Or whatever it is. And would you let me explain this? So once again, as I mentioned about managing up, this is the way which you manage it. Do not leave elders to their own assumptions. That's dangerous. Don't leave parents. So after I get the pastor's permission, I'm going to go to the elders and then I'm going to go to the parents. I'll call for a parents' meeting. You have many things to talk about in the parents' meeting. But one of them is, here's how our staff functions. You won't find us around these hours. 
you take off, we're probably putting in about 45 to 50 hours a week, each of us, we kind of calculate it. If, you know, it varies from week to week. But our schedules, unlike other church staff people, are flex schedules. So you explain it. That's what I would do. And you can tell whether you're getting buy-in. Two parents say, oh, I don't think I like that. Well, would you talk to our youth committee chair because we fully discussed it with them. And they can give you some insights. And then if you and the chairman want to come talk to me, I'd love to hear from you later. Instead of trying to argue it out with that person. Hey, you need a youth committee. Committees in churches are for the purpose of dealing with finances where, where staff has national conflicts of interest. Or dealing in areas where there is controversy or potential controversy. That's all you need to do. So in a large church like Seth, we only have like five areas. Because we only have five areas of finance, like missions, or potential controversy like recreation or youth. We don't have controversy in worship, so we don't have worship. We don't need one. We worship literature team. So you put teams where you have no money and no controversy. You put committees where you have potential controversy. You, you always have potential controversy. So you have a youth committee chair who's an elder. He's fully informed, and you discuss it with him. So you vet it with the pastor. You vet it with the committee head. Then you ask for time for sessions. Then you go to the parents. You see, you're disclosing it. So whenever I'm on vacation, my administrative assistant always knows exactly where I am. Anywhere in the world, anywhere at the beach, anywhere in my family, 24-7, she always knows where I am and why I'm there. Now that's not just so that she can get a hold of me because I have a cell phone and she wouldn't have to know where I am. It's so that if someone wonders where I am, they know exactly what I'm doing. So, and I challenge anybody, if you all will put the time in on your Christian volunteer work, like the time I put in as a paid person, I think it's going to be in pretty good shape. So you all come on, follow me. And you want to live a life like that. And so you're ready to disclose. And in fact, you think you're setting a good model for the lawyers in your congregation. You wish they would spend more time on it. So you want to, you want to use, you know, some people say, I'll never be in the ministry because I don't want to be in a fishbowl. I'm saying the fishbowl is my best friend. Come, look, watch, see my feet. <laughs> you want to live in a fishbowl. So you want to disclose, and so that you're serving at the pleasure with full information that's appropriate with the people that are your stakeholders in your life. So I would say pastor, committee, session. Okay. Never mentioned to you. Oh, yeah. No, you can tell me. In negotiation with you sometimes. Like, Not much. Why aren't you at every basketball game? Oh, I want my kids to get to bed. You know, they don't understand that. True. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, if I have a D group, yeah, I, I go to the basketball games. Yeah. Why weren't you there? Hey, look, here's what I did. Yeah. Definitely. You explain everything. You can learn from them. Usually, you learn from your executive group, your seniors and juniors that have been with you for a few years. They'll they'll tell you a lot, and you can negotiate with them. Generally speaking, you just generally inform everybody else, and you're listening. And explain, but generally not doing a whole lot of negotiating because you've already got it from your executive group. You kind of know what's going on. You know all that. If you've been there several years, you, you pretty much know. So I feel like if I've really come to terms with my session and my personnel committee and my executive staff in my case, I'm, I'm really not uh, soliciting a lot of opinions when I go into partnership. I'll explain something to you that I'm not saying, what do you think about how staff spends their time? I've got other people that you've elected to help me put that out. Now maybe I'm thinking the large church, the smaller the church, the more 
democratic you, you become political. You must because they, they have more influence. So, yes? Sir? Could you give some advice on building uh, good Yes, uh, you should have, if you're the, the chief youth leader, you have to take responsibility working with the senior pastor and with him through the session to get yourself a solid youth committee. Now, your first two years, you're, you're frustrated. You're, you know, it's not quite what you want. By the time you're there in three years, this should be a helpful committee. So, chairman's the most important role. So you go to the pastor and say, hey, how do we get the right chairman on this committee? How do you get the right staff to be the chairman, pastor? For that committee. Because I guarantee you, if he has any sense, he knows how to influence that. So how do you do that one? Shouldn't I do the same thing with the youth committee? Would you help me? Would you tell me who you think would be the best youth committee chair? So yeah, man, you're influencing that, that one crazy. Now, not because you want to manipulate the committee, because you want to help the youth ministry. And you've got to have a youth committee chairman who knows how to talk to parents for heaven's sakes. If he's a wimp, and listens to every criticism with no response, no thank you. I'd rather not have it. Yet. So, yes, you must be critical of that and try to influence it. And then, of course, you don't get the last say. The session does. And some churches are easy to manage and some are not. But give it your best shot. Any other? Thank you all so much. Father, we, we are your servants. And... Help us to know how to be both courageous and humble. How to be meek and expressive. How to work and how to wait. How to talk and how to pray. Teach us, Lord. We are your servants and your children, your students, your disciples. For Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.